Buenos dias, my friends. How's everybody doing? Good, good. I'm glad to be with you. I was actually on top of that scaffolding this last week, 41 feet to the peak of that ceiling, just doing pastor things. So I'm glad to be here without a sheetrock mask on my face. But uh, yeah, we're doing some, up, some, uh, some renovations there at uh, used to be St. James Catholic Church. Uh, they've merged with another parish, and that building sat empty for about three years. So we're moving from the comedy club where we've met previously <laughs> to an old Catholic church. Yeah, in a day's week, in a, in, all, all in a day's work. Uh, people are like, comedy club, Catholic church. As far as the east is from the west. Like, how are, it's, like, ah, it's going to be good, it's going to be fun. So uh, we're really excited about that. March 8th will be our first Sunday there, Lord willing. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to 2 Kings chapter 17. If you are new, uh, Crossview is in a series called The Wayfinding Bible, where we're walking through the scriptures. And today I have the distinct, uh, if you've read ahead, <laughs> you may have recognized what a, what a lovely friend Brad is to leave me with this text. Um, it's an interesting one. I'm only going to read half of it, um, so if you would, stand as we hear God's word, and by the end of it, you'll recognize how much we love Brad. Here we go. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria. He reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal, and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to sow the king of Egypt, and he had no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him, put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years." In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Chala, in Gozan, on the Habor River, in the towns of the Medes. Verse 7, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices of the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord, their God, that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all of the towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, through the, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. Verse 14, but they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he made with their ancestors and the statutes he warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. That's a bad day when you're called worthless by God. <laughs> they imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. We're almost there. Verse 16, they forsook all the commands of the Lord their God, made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. 
They bowed down to all the starry hosts, and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination, sought omens, and sold themselves to evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel, removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices of Israel that excuse me, Israel had introduced. Therefore the Lord rejected all of the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. Pray with me. God, have mercy on us as we uh, enter this study. I pray that you would do what you do, that you would offer yourselves to us and encounter with you. And I pray that uh, what happens in this room in the next few moments, God, would be of you, uh, of your spirit, empowering us to be more and more like Jesus and more and more like the people you have made us to be. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So that was half of the text Brad assigned to me. And you might be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with anything important? And a lot of people read the Bible and they read passages like this or the book of Leviticus or Numbers and they come to the conclusion that in fact nothing It has nothing to do with anything that's important. But I want to make a strong case this morning that it actually does have something to do with you and with me and with us. So here's how I want to tackle this beast. Uh, We're going to zoom out a little bit. I think anytime you come to a passage in Scripture that you struggle with or that you're not sure about, it's a good exercise to always just hit zoom out because you want to... You want to seat whatever you're studying in the larger, grander sort of meta-narrative of the Bible because then you can sort of make sense of the particulars that you find, right? So we're going to zoom out. Then I want to ask one question, a lens, if you will, that we're going to look at this text through. When you come to a passage in Scripture that you have questions about or you're not sure about, sometimes you can ask a question and then read the text through the question or through the lens, and sometimes it'll help open things up if you're onto something there. So we'll do that. Then I want to zoom in what's actually happening here, and then uh, what does this have to say to us? So football season's over. We've got a few hours. Are you ready? That's not a rhetorical question. Are you ready? Okay, great. I love teaching the Bible. I love the Bible. So um, this, is a, this is a challenge, and, I, and I, I accept. So zoom out, all right? You have to remember the context in which this book is written. Second Kings is a story or stories about the nation of Israel and the kings that they asked for. So if you back up the truck, you remember the dump truck, you know, when the lights go on? Back it up, and you begin at Genesis 12, you remember that God called Abraham, then Abram, to go to a country he did not know, and he would bless the world through the nation of Israel. So God, of course, sends, uh, uh, is good on that promise, and they are born Isaac, who's born Jacob, who was born 12 sons who become Israel. Okay? At the end of Genesis, the beginning of Exodus, we find the Israelites in Egypt in exile. They are slaves in a foreign country, and they are there against their will. This is where the beginning of the story is for the Israelites, at least according to this passage. Or, or. So God sends Moses, our good friend Moses, the prince of Egypt, to go in, let my people go. Hey, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Oh, baby, yeah, sir, you betcha. <laughs> Best junior high song ever written. Thank you very little. So Moses goes in. He gets the people out. They go across the Red Sea. 
They are standing on the edge of the promise. Oh, before they get there, Charlton Heston enters the scene, and he receives the Ten Commandments, the law, the Torah, right? So Charlton Heston gets the law. They are on the edge of the promised land. The spies are sent into Canaan. Ten come back and say, there are giants. We are grasshoppers. We're dead. Two say, the Lord is with us. What are we waiting for? They don't go into the land, but it's at that point that they wander around in the desert. An entire generation of people die before they're back at that place again in the book of Numbers, and they enter the land. And it's at this point that God's restoration project that started back here in Genesis 12 with Abram is now at its zenith, right? God's attempt to rescue, restore, redeem the world through the nation of Israel in the land is ready to go, ready to rock. They are there in the land. They're in relationship with God. The the sacrificial system is set up so that if there be any miscues or uh, uh, wrongs made in the relationships between Israel and God, they can reckon that, and they're ready to go. But of course, if you know the story, they say, dude, the Joneses have a flat screen plasma. We need one. And the teenagers of Israel start saying, listen, mom, dad, all my friends have cell phones. I need a cell phone. I mean, if there's an emergency, what am I going to do? To which all the parents of Israel said, well, guess what? All your friends have cell phones, so you don't need one. Boom! (laughs) Practicing for my kids, 11, 8, and 6. They have kings. We want kings. We need a king. Everybody's got kings. We should have one. And God says, you don't need a king. But the Israelites, they, they, they will not relent. And so God gives them what they want. Write that one down. We get what we want. So God gives them a king and all, you know what, breaks loose. Bad decisions, bad choices, and lead the people to horrible, horrible places and horrible decisions. To which point we get us to King 17. And this story, where the last king, this, the, the kingdom of Israel had been split, ten in the, in the north, Israel, two in the south, Judah. The last king of Israel, Hosea, and the people are dragged right back where they began, which was where? Not Egypt, but exile. Well done. Good job. Exile. So the story begins in exile, and the story ends in exile. That's where this story is. That's where it's situated. Everybody tracking so far? Okay, now, let's ask a question. Have you ever been at a point in your life where you say to yourself, how did we get here? <laughs> or, how did I get here? My, my wife and daughter, I have three daughters, uh, they were at Target the other day, and um, young, young, young girl, young women things are making it into the cart. At which point I ask the question, how did we get here? You know, in some... Somebody says, well, I could give you a lesson on how you got there. (laughs) I don't need any help. I'm good. That's a joke. (laughs) Comedy club, come on, people, lighten up. I say I don't need help on that. I know how we got here, right? But how did we get here? My wife and I moved here from Colorado 15 years ago. Like, Purple Mountains Majesty, Colorado. I was just there a couple weeks ago with Brad and Steve where there was lots of revelry and good times. I will report back to you, your pastor is doing just fine. (laughs) And I came home and I'm talking to my wife about it and she's like, how are we still in this house that we got when we, that we bought when we moved here and how is there still no trim in the basement? (laughs) How did we get here? I mean, have you ever been there before? Or maybe last Saturday morning you thought to yourself, how did I get here after Friday night? 
figuratively and literally. How did I get here? Or maybe you woke up one morning and you looked at your spouse and you're like, how did we get here? To where I love you because I said I would 20 years ago, but I don't really like you. (laughs) Now we're real. How did I get here? How did we get here to where we have a knee-jerk response or reaction to a certain group of people in the world as a person who follows Jesus? How did we get here? I think this question helps frame what's happening in 2 Kings 17 because a group of people who have been rescued and redeemed and restored and made new find themselves in exile again. How did we get here? Let's zoom out a little bit, uh, or excuse me, zoom in to this passage, right? You have 12 years into this Ahaz, who's the king of Judah in the south, you get Hosea, king of Israel in the north. He gets this kingdom, this kingship, by assassinating the previous king. So if you're looking for a promotion at work, you might not want to try this one. Doesn't work out well. So he assassinates the guy before him, and he becomes essentially a puppet king from the Assyri- for the Assyrians who invade Israel. Right? Do you remember Herod in Jesus' time? Herod was the king of Israel, but actually Rome was the king. Herod just collected taxes and sent them back to Rome. Similarly, this guy, Hosea, is a tax collector in Israel for the Assyrian army. Now, what gets him into trouble is he starts making deals with who but the Egyptians in the south to sort of mount an army to sort of go back at the Assyrians, and then all, everything goes, goes amok, as my grandpa used to say. So the Assyrians come in and they imprison Hosea, they, they, they cart off all of Israel to, uh, to Assyria. And, then, and the latter half of the chapter is the, the, the writer saying, why did this happen, basically? All right, so that's kind of what's happening in this particular text. Now, how did Israel get here? Let's see if we can cut through the meandering of this story and offer a couple of thoughts. Number one, I would say we supplement and we add. We supplement and we add to. Remember where the story begins in the Bible, like before Abraham, you've got Adam and Eve in the garden. And Adam and Eve in the garden have everything that they need. They lack nothing. The Hebrews called this shalom, peace, which is not an absence of war or you know, no brothers and sisters fighting, but it's actually a, it's a state of being in which all is well in God's good world where the people who God made are in relationship with God, they are in relationship with each other, with the world around them, and the relationship with themselves. None of it is compromised. It is shalom. It's peace. They have everything that they need until they believe the lie of the serpent, which is God's holding out on you. There's not enough to go around. You have to secure what you need And get it on your own. In fact, this thing, this knowledge of good and evil, God's holding out on you. And if you get it, you'll be like God. They had everything that they need, but they added, they grabbed, they secured. And of course, we find that it didn't go well for them. Israel, in this case, has everything they need as they enter the promised land. They're in relationship with God. They have this system which helps write that relationship if it goes wrong. They've got everything they need to be God's people. They have Torah, the law, which was the spirit of God indwelling this thing that enabled them to be God's people. They have everything they need. And yet we find in verses 14 to 17, they're adding and adding and adding, particularly verse 16. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves. Time out, friends. 
I'm not, I don't remember a lot. In fact, I have a terrible memory, but I seem to remember a story about a calf, a golden one. Do you remember this, right? Charlton Heston's up on the top. Aaron's down at the bottom. They get bored. They're like, where's Moses? We don't even know. Who is this guy anyhow? Let's make a golden calf, which is a really bizarre idea, but they do so, and God gets really, really hacked off. So these people, thinking back as good historians that they are, they think, let's not make one, let's double down. Let's, let's make two. So they make two idols. They supplement and they add. They're constructing Asherah poles, which are these sort of mystic uh, sort of prayer things. They're burning incense all throughout the land. They're adding and adding and adding, supplementing, and they have everything they need. We're in a series on the book of Hebrews right now at Awaken. And the author of Hebrews opens the book of Hebrews with this beautiful, beautiful sort of introduction where he says, in the past, God spoke through our ancestors, the prophets, Moses, and others. But now, God has revealed God's self to you through the Son. And it's as if the author of Hebrews is saying, it is none but Jesus. None but Jesus. In a pluralistic, postmodern world that we live in, you run around saying, none but Jesus, and people think you're crazy, right? The scriptures offer a very clear message that all roads do not lead to God, but in fact, it's none but Jesus that in the death, life, and resurrection, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, something particular has happened, and that God secures relationship with those who want it through this act. None but Jesus. For the Israelites, it was none but Yahweh. But they added, they supplemented. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, it's like a smorgasbord. You ever been to California? They actually have a restaurant called Smorgasbord. It's, oh, it's doomed to fail from the beginning. Smorgasbords are never good. And they're not usually not good for you, let's be honest. So they're just a little bit of this, a little bit of that, right? Question this morning. Let's just stop for a moment. Take a deep breath. Have you added anything? To worship is to place something in a position of authority, power, significance in your life. And to allow that thing to dictate or speak into the rest of your life. That's to worship it. It's to ascribe ultimate worth. The author of Hebrews says none but Jesus. The author of 2 Kings says none but Yahweh. I wonder if we've added anything. If we've thought, ah, maybe a little bit of this, maybe a little bit of hard work, a little bit of my own effort, a little bit of who knows whatever else. And the authors, I think of scripture, are saying very clearly and very loudly, you might want to think twice about that because it doesn't go well. When we supplement and we add, our hearts become hardened. So for Israel, they added, they supplemented, they gave a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and then this process of hearts becoming hardened begins. The author of Hebrews, again, in chapter 3, he's talking, he says, listen, your mothers and your fathers before you, they rebelled in the desert and they, they ceased to be able to hear and sense and move when God spoke and asked them to move. Their hearts became hard and callous and they couldn't hear God's voice anymore. And when that happens, it is not good. And BT dubs, the hardening of one's heart, by the way, the hardening of one's heart, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like people wake up on a Saturday and they're like, you know, I think today's a good day to harden my heart towards the things of God. 
I think that's what I'll do today. Yeah, not Home Depot. I'm going to harden my heart. No, it's like small, little, we think, insignificant decisions along the way. And then we get to the point where we ask that question of how on earth did I get here? Maybe, you, maybe it was just cheating on a test, you know, just one little thing, and then all of a sudden, how have I become a cheater? Maybe you lied. Maybe you did something at work that was unethical, and you thought maybe it would slip under the... It's just small, subtle, insignificant decisions that we make along the way, and what happens is a... The first sermon I ever preached as a junior high youth pastor, I was 22 years old. It was called Spiritual Arteriosclerosis. <laughs> what a dork. <laughs> but do you know what happens to the arteries of your heart when you put terrible things in your body? The, 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 the walls of your arteries actually harden. And things build up. And it, it blocks the flow of the life-giving nutrient that we call blood. And you have a heart attack and you die. When our hearts become hardened... It blocks the flow of God's spirit and God's movement in our life. And it's small, insignificant things that block it. So for Israel, they supplemented, they added, their hearts became hard. And when our hearts become hard, man, the pastor at this church that I worked at, the first, first church I ever worked at, he said, sin makes you stupid. And I think he was right. We do dumb things. Because we think, when our hearts become hard, and we think that something that's, that leads to death and darkness will actually lead us to life and light. Somehow we get it mixed up. And over time, we think that something that is going to eventually actually lead to death and darkness will bring us light and life. And so we have another one on Friday, thinking that that will numb the pain. But in fact, it only makes matters worse. Or we... Fill in the blank. We say something to that person in our life and we think it will make us feel better. It will legitimate the hurt that I've felt and that I've experienced. And the moment we do it, the poison comes out and it cuts like a knife. Not only them, but us. And it never pays out. And yet, it leads to death and darkness and we keep doing it. Why? Because sin makes you stupid. And you make dumb choices. That's why the author of Hebrews says, do, be careful don't have a, a sinful, deceitful heart because it leads to terrible, wicked things. We think death and darkness lead to life. In this passage, does anybody catch who the, the king of Israel decides to make a deal with for a million Torah points, if you were listening? What country? Egypt! This should be like lights flashing in the text for you. Egypt, if you didn't know, is a place... And it's a spiritual state of being. Egypt in Hebrew literally means the narrow place. The narrow place is where you're constricted, you're confined, you can't breathe, you can't move, you can't expand, you die. When you live there, it is no good for anyone. So the king of Israel, God's people, chosen people, living in the land decides it's a great idea to make a deal to get in bed with Egypt, the ones who enslaved our mothers and fathers for hundreds and hundreds of years. What kind of a person would do that? Somebody's heart who has become hardened over time after little by little small insignificant choices that we make. Did you notice what the people were doing? There's a god called Molech that was nearby. And Molech required the, the people who worshipped him to offer their firstborns. Israel, 
the same group of people who in their sacred text have a story about a father who brings a son to a place to sacrifice him and God does not ask him to sacrifice the son but actually provides the sacrifice for him. So if we know anything about this God, it's that God does not require you to do that. God provides another way. This group of people who have this story in their sacred text decide, you know what, let's start sacrificing our firstborns. What makes you do that? Hardness of heart. Adding, supplementing, more things. So, how in the world do you make sense of 2 Kings 17? Israel begins in exile. God redeems them, provides a way, a redemptive story to be written should they choose to live into it. And yet, because of their small, insignificant choices over time, their hearts become hard and they forget. They cease to be able to hear God's voice. And they actually start living and making choices that they think will lead to life and light, but actually lead to death and darkness. It's a good thing nobody does that anymore. What does this have to do with anything? I think it has to do with everything. And I think it has to do with you, and I think it has to do with me. So, here's what I want to do today. We're going to close, and I want to try to create a little bit of space in a very busy world that we live in for you to hear the Spirit of God. When we meet at Awaken on Sundays, we assume that God's Spirit wants to speak. And so we try to set the table for people to encounter God. So if you would, I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Jill's just going to play lightly. And I recognize that I'm not a voice that uh, you hear every week, but I'm going to ask that you maybe trust me for just a moment. And if not, that's totally cool. I get it. But if you would, I'm going to ask if you could just create a little bit of space around yourself. So if that means closing your eyes, if it means bowing your head, if it means moving a couple seats away from somebody, if you have that space to do so, go ahead and do that. And I just want to ask a couple of questions and then leave you some time to, to listen, to consider what the Spirit of the Lord might be saying to you today. So if you would, just close your eyes and imagine. The word repent in Hebrew is teshuva. And it means simply turn around. So maybe you came here this morning and there is some hardness of heart that's been building up. Maybe it's towards a spouse, towards your children. Maybe it's a temptation that you keep getting closer and closer to. And it actually leads to death and darkness. I want to invite you to imagine that, whatever that is, and confess it. Repent. Teshuva. Turn around. Go in a different direction. And say that to God. Have that conversation. Whatever that looks like. Whatever that sounds like for you. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never said yes to God. Maybe you've been wondering, exploring, trying to figure it out. And this morning what you do know is that whatever you're doing now is not working. But you keep doing it keep trying to fix it and it's still broken. In fact, it's getting worse. Just stop. Teshuva. Turn around. 
just implore you, encourage you, invite you to just say yes to God. To recognize that you can't fix it, you can't make it better, and that you need God to do something that you can't do. Some people call it salvation. I would say just turn around and start walking towards God. So wherever you are this morning, take the next few moments to work that out. Imagine it. See it in your mind's eye. Science tells us to the degree we can see it in our mind is the degree to which it can change us. So go ahead and do that with Lord. Jill will lead us in a song and we'll offer a benediction. So.